to welcome us. Um, Dr. Paul Collis has agreed to do an acknowledgement. Paul, thank you very much. None of our people would say Jan means hello. So Jan. They then followed it up with two words, Yed and Buru, good morning. Anyone know that? What's wrong with you people? <laughs> Where have been living? I've been living here in Annawal country now for 15, 16 years. It's the longest I've lived anywhere. Uh, uh, I thank none of my people for making me feel welcome. Last year, I ran a series of workshops for the last two years called Story Ground. And each time we held a Story Ground workshop at the University of Canberra, we got one of the elders to welcome us. It wasn't until we had that welcome that people felt that they had the right to write or to make art. So I want to thank the Ngunnawal people for making me feel so welcome. It's a beautiful country. I hope you enjoy the day. Thank you very much, Paul, um, for that acknowledgement. Um, and I would just, for my own sake, acknowledge that uh, one of the I'd been living here on Nunawal country for several years when I um, first had the privilege of being present for a welcome to country from Tina Brown, um, which was so deeply affecting and moving the way she introduced us to um, to the knowledge of this country um, and to the space in this country. And it was it was truly the first time I I felt at home on this country. Um, I'm sad that we haven't had Tina's welcome here today, but we absolutely acknowledge and understand the massive intergenerational trauma of Indigenous people on this land and, and we, we absolutely understand when things don't work according to what white people would like them, how white people would like them to work on this land. Um, on that note, it's now my really great pleasure to introduce the facilitator of our first panel, uh, Dr Janara Garengareng. Janara is a waka waka wulai wulai woman from central Queensland and carries the traditions of her clan through medicine practice, being a songwoman and teaching Aboriginal law and spirituality to people throughout the world. Janara is a published poet, writer, performer of traditional song and dance and contemporary Murray artist who regularly facilitates Aboriginal women's business workshops and Aboriginal law, culture and spirituality workshops in Australia and overseas. For 30 years, Janara has been working with groups and organisations in Australia and overseas in transformational leadership mentoring, cultural systemic change, self-managing leaders and sacred leadership. Janara is the CEO of One Inma Global, an, an Indigenous transformational leadership company, and has been an academic lecturer and researcher at five Australian universities and the Australian College of Applied Psychology. She's been a Director of Aboriginal Education at Charles Sturt University, the Director of the Centre for Aboriginal Education at the University of Melbourne. Janara has also extensive public service experience in the federal government and the Queensland and New South Wales state governments. As Director, Researcher, Senior Policy Advisor in Prime Minister and Cabinet, the Office of Indigenous Policy Coordination, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and a number of statutory authorities. Janara has travelled and worked extensively overseas, delivering keynote speeches and workshops at major international conferences on leadership, intergenerational trauma recovery, and Indigenous research methodologies. 
Gennaro's PhD from the Australian National University, titled Chukapapulka, The Road to Eldership, How Aboriginal Culture Creates Sacred and Visionary Leaders, was awarded in 2018 and will be published as a book next year. Her memoir, A Long Way From No Go, was published in July 2018, and having read it recently, I can highly recommend it as an engaging and deeply affecting work. Janara has coordinated and will chair the opening session on Indigenous democracy. Please welcome her. Hello, everyone. Ua Palya. Welcome. So I'm going to start by um, inviting my colleagues to come and uh, sit on the stage. And I want to thank the ancestors of the Ngunnawal and the Gambri people for having us on their country today, allowing us to live and work here. So if Ms Lydia Thorpe from uh, Victoria could come and take a seat. And James Williams from Victoria, our Greens members, very notable Greens members, I should say. Lydia, if you could take the end seat. Um, maybe James next to her. Um, Dr Paul Collis, who did our Acknowledgement to Country, a lecturer at the University of Canberra. Could you please come to the stage? Uwapalya, wake that old man up. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. So our topic this morning is Indigenous democracy and decolonising democracy. In a sense, so the four of us are going to speak for about 10 minutes. Oh, Tim, can I ask you to plug my computer in so the slide will show? Thanks. Um, don't need music, just pictures. And then we're going to have some time for question and answers from the audience. So please listen deeply with a sense of Didiri, which is our listening deeply methodology. And ask us questions afterwards because we're all here to talk to you. I'm going to start the day by singing a song from my mother's country, which she taught, James is my brother, which she taught um, her children. And this song we sing to children as we go out on country. We ask them to follow us and learn the law and follow us in the law. So I'll sing this song for you and I'm happy for you to clap along with your right hand on your right leg. Garin in the Nami to Juma Beranu, Garin in the Nami to Juma Beranu, Garin in the Nami to Juma Beranu, Gaya Mamma Rangu and Jug and Gungayungung, Gaya Mamma Rangu and Jug and Gungayungung. Oh, you mob like to clap, eh? Next time, clap louder. <laughs> So I'll start by talking about traditional business because that's my forte. Things I've learned from my elders and things that I now pass on. So many, many years ago when I was a young woman, 21, going through corroboree with some elders uh, over a period of a couple of days in community, this old man, we were having a bit of a Q&A with these elders, us young ones, and this old man said, you know, don't worry about these migloos, which is white people. You're named after the white whale that travels up the coast, migaloo. Don't worry about these migloos. 
They're only going to be here for this long. And we all sat there in silence in this circle, wondering what he meant by, you know, this long. That's like a second. That's a quick click. And what he was telling us was, just follow the law. Don't think about things so much, about what they do. Of course, they will cause destruction. Just follow the law that you're being taught. Carry that law in your way of knowing, being and doing and thinking and follow that law in all your actions and then pass that law on to your children and then educate them migloos whenever you get the chance to share the law to those who want to listen so they can learn how to live on your country. So our knowledge system comes from what we call time immemorial. We don't give it those carbon dating, you know, let's date the bones back to 100,000 years. For us, it's time immemorial, as my auntie used to say. And so for thousands of years, we've been on a cycle of learning journey where we share our knowledge of the laws. We've only had 230 years, is it, of the colonising trauma of British colonisation, and I'm not going to minimise it by saying it's only 230 years. But in the great scheme of things, if you've been here for a very, very long time, and we do say that we are one of the first peoples of the earth, then you've created a system that is pretty amazing in which you've lived to take care of country, to take care of self and to take care of everyone else. So, I'm, I want you to be mindful that that's how old our system is because we always keep that in mind. John Pilger, in his first film about Australia called A Secret Country, said that this place was a pure democracy before white people came. And I had to sort of go and look it up. What's a pure democracy? A pure democracy is not what we have now. If you could click the next one. A pure democracy is related to the spirituality of the culture. So everything in our governance system starts with our own spirit, our own soul, my kurumpa. And I relate it to the chukupa, which is my sacred business, which comes from the other dimension where Bayami, our creator God, lives. And it relates to my human life. So we know little children are sacred when they are born from the time they are born to the time they die. They go through a developmental governance and education system, which is a pure democracy. So we make decisions this way. If there is one person that will not agree with the decision in the community, these are people who have been through puberty initiation. So from then on, you're allowed to speak and you're, you're actually meant to express your opinion the way that you need to. And then if the decision is made, May, in the process of being made, if one person cannot agree out of a hundred people, the decision is finished and it's not brought forward. It may be brought forward again another time. But until everyone, everyone's spirit, everyone's soul thinks that this is a good thing to do for country, for people, for self, then they can agree to it. So it's not an intellectual process, it's a spiritual one. If you could hit the next one. Um, our structures of governance were all about circles. There are men and women. There are children below puberty age. There are children above puberty age. And there are people at different cycles in their life. 
throughout their life. So in your 30s, you become a teacher. In your 50s, you start the training for eldership. You know, when you're really old, you might be invited to be an elder. But everybody has a job. And so in this structural system, the men and the women are in complete equity. Not equality, equity. So women are half the circle, men are half the circle. This is our governance structure. And you're invited to be an elder because you show wisdom in all your actions, your thinking and your doing. All has to be congruent. And it has to be watched for quite some time before the elders will invite you to be an elder. You don't become an elder because you get wrinkles and grey hair. You become an elder because you're wise and you practice it and people trust your judgement. So your powers of your soul, the power to listen, the power to cooperate, the power to accommodate, to let go, to pack up, to withdraw, these spiritual powers are things that we use in our governance structure. If you could hit the next one. So the community structure is this half a circle of elders and men, and they protect the community by making the decisions. So decisions are made sometimes that are hard. The decision of big bit killed if somebody murders or rapes. Big bit killed is being speed dead straight away. Little bit killed is, um, you know, for other things like adultery or doing small things. But these decisions are hard. The elders make these decisions. The Gadaicha carries them out. To the next one. The law is always central. So people always think, what is the law that I must follow in making this decision? This is the democracy. If it goes against the laws of respect, it doesn't happen. If it goes against the law of harmony and unconditional love, it doesn't happen. If it goes against the law of mutual reciprocity, napaji napaji, it doesn't happen. So this is our structure when we come together as a community, often in corroboree. So children are always in their little circles by their age group, inside protected by elders. Next one, my friend. Thank you. So our journey is a, a path of enlightenment. It's actually spiritual enlightenment from birth to death. It's not just to live on the planet, look after country, take care of animals, don't kill too many, you know, bless the trees, thank your family. It's about having a, a whole systemic, integrated relationship with everything around you that you have to keep in harmony. That's what our law tells us. The major law of all the clans is the law of Kanyini. Different clans give different language to it, but it basically means to keep everything in harmony, to keep me, my feelings and my relationships in harmony with myself, with everyone else and with the land and the animals because they're my Walter, they're my family. Next one, thank you. So um, when we talk about our eldership, it's eldership in a spiritual way. And sacred leadership in the Western tradition is about this integrated spiritual consciousness that someone has. And they say that only 8% of the world's business leaders reach sacred leadership. 1% of the world's population reaches sacred leadership. We're talking about Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, Mother Teresa, the Dalai Lama, whoever else you'd like to stick in that list. Okay, thank you. So... So we live in a life of harmony, and what we see when we look at white culture, I'm sorry to say, I'm not being mean about it, but we look at it and we see a lot of war, violence and dysfunctionality that came to our country, and it was an onslaught that we had to fight against. 
So imagine here we are 230 years later and all of us are holding to the law because our elders held to the law and the ancestors and, and the mob who came to kill it out didn't kill it because it can't be killed. It's in the song lines in the earth. If you could go to the next one. This is the stuff I learned from this old man, a traditional owner of Uluru who's now passed. Okay, if you could go to the next one. And I learned it from this old woman who's still alive, traditional owner of Uluru. These people have OAMs and AMs recognised by the Australian government for their significant giving to Australia of Aboriginal culture. To the next one, my friend. So then that would be the last one. So then let me just say that my, the point that I wanted to make was what John Pilger said about pure democracy was probably entirely correct. If you take it right down to the actual dictionary understanding of what purity is. Because purity is about purity of thought, word and action. You know? And what old man Jilpy Randall taught me was that the law of Kanyini, the harmony of Kanyini, is to be in harmony with all the energy around you, all the energy in the world, the energy inside the self, inside the mind. Can you imagine doing that all your life so that you get really good at it by the time you die? He died at 88. For the last 10, 15 years of his life, to me, he was the embodiment of that law. And he carried it and he held it. So did other senior lawmen and women in his community. So for me, I looked up to those elders as the leaders in our community who practised this form of pure democracy, of learning to care and share Nupaji Nupaji with each living thing, with each living person. They cared and shared with their Nura, their land, their Walcha, their family, which was also the animals and the trees and everything on the earth, with the Chukapa, the sacred business, and they carried that law, and they still carry that law amongst very harsh conditions. You know the harsh conditions that people live in in the Northern Territory. You know the harsh conditions that we deal with every day as you hear it and read about it in the media. So for me, the fact that I've been taught and I can say, yes, I'm willing to use my courage to face things that are fearful in this dominant culture and hold to the trueness of the law in my thoughts, words and actions. I'm only 61. It's going to take me another 20 or 30 years to get really good at it. But I've been practising a little while and it's the practice that gets you there. So if I do it every day, you know, I can't sit in my car with the windows wound up and rage at the man in front of me because he's driving like an idiot. The laws of respect require me to slow down, to calm my mind, to be at peace and to just go, I'm going to be good in this traffic. So imagine when I go to Melbourne and Sydney, <laughs> after being in Canberra, you know, 10 cars in a row is peak hour, and you go to Sydney and it's like a 30k freeway line. It's like, oh, I'm just going to listen to this music and I'm going to be calm, yeah? So to watch these old people do that in the face of really harsh conditions is an amazing thing because they have other gifts. They have these powerful spiritual intuitive gifts. They know how to call up the rain. They know how to call up the animals they need. They, they know how to, when to go somewhere. You know, I hear grandmother's voice in my mind when she wants me to come home to Uluru. Come, you know, and I have to get on a plane and go. 
She doesn't ring up on the telephone. She wouldn't know how to use a telephone. So for me, following these people to learn how to be one of them is for me the epitome of my cultural and spiritual life. And for me, it's about how I live that and then it becomes the democracy in my life. Ua Palya, thank you so much. So now I'm going to ask Dr. Paul to share his thoughts on decolonising democracy. Um, I'm from Burke. I'm a Barkingtry person. There's a river out there. I don't know if there's a river anymore. The white boys call it Darling. We call it Darling too. There's a different word for it called Barker. Not Burke Barker. I've heard before it. Barker. Just Barker. A Barker means my love, my darling, coincidentally. Well, Sir John Darling might have been a nice bloke. <laughs> his, his grandson to me at school. Now that, he died here in Canberra a couple of years ago. Yeah, his name was John Darling too. Bright red hair, he went to Bali when he was young. Went up in the hills, lived up in the hills. Red is the colour of devil there. He was a ginger head when he never washed in the river. The devil, the devil washes, the devil man, this lovely guy. We call that river Barker. We name it Barker, my love, because we believe it was made by the rainbow serpent. The rainbow serpent is a woman's enemy. All the rivers are. There's no word in that literal language, just means river. Did you know that? And it did because you're all linguist. I know some language by the time I finish. Barker, Young, Edinburgh, the three words, give a couple more. Um, so made by Rainbow Serpent. We are matriarchy, we fall under matriarchy law. Men help carry that law out, but it's women speaking. Other places, they're patriarchy. Aaron the man says, Come and I'll show you my grandfather's country. They're really saying, come and I'll show you my grandfather's true country. Very opposite way. I'm going to talk about how the opposite is. Maybe you can understand it. Maybe you need some more time to think about it. Traditionally, we live in, a law, in the laws of obligation. We are obligated to each person, that means. Whether we know them or not, and we're obligated to the land itself. We live in a land of obligation. That means virtually no word for thank you. You do because you must. It's the right thing to do. Keep wants water and you have the capacity to give him water. See, give me come on. My role in life would be to be the best barking person I could be. Not to be better than that barking you like. Does anyone know what identifies the indigenous claim? Do you know any backwards? Mm-hmm. No, someone. An indigenous game is one where you don't keep score. Okay? You don't keep score. When we invite people at Bree Warren and make Bree Warren means tall trees. And they made those fish traps. People are resident to give it an age on that because it's so old. And they made those fish traps. 
Old people have told them it's been right in the eight language groups that surround them. Get them to help make it. So that they can never be claimed as mine. And that people would never say to you, you've kept all that to yourself. That's competition. So when you start talking about democracy, I don't know how you can get it out. It's all about competition. We got rid of it. I have a little of obligation. The law of obligation is no need to think. When you invite others to do with you, you eliminate competition. You eliminate it also through law. Why? The matriarchy law. Women's law. Women's freedom is a different outlook. Another important part of that democracy democracy like they used to say the process is that we didn't practice war we had payback and when white people arrived in Sydney couldn't just go and kill them all because they might be related to you they might be in the same dream as you same skin so we didn't know and all they found out that they weren't ghosts. They had white policy to take his land. But even then he didn't attack to kill. He burned them out. He stopped selling them in Parramatta for about 15 years by burning crops. He could burn the crops and burn the house, don't kill. That playing against us is unless I just won't go home. White people have not been good for this country. I would not let them bastards get their hands over here again. Not dry because of drought. I was born in the drought. I live in New drought. Worse than this one. That could have plenty of water. Of course, those pipes that they suck out, that's what they know what to talk about. When the Cubby Station, when those fish died in the near, near Cubby Station, men would walk around with their guns out. Imagine Blackfoot walk around with their guns out on the river bank. You'd have to come from the area, didn't I? You have obligation. You haven't been obligated to us. Back to Aboriginal people have been the worst treated, I think, on the planet. Alexander Downer's grandfather or great grandfather, he was the first man premier of South Australia. That bastard organised eight massacres of blacks, paid for out of government coffers, and 20 out of his own money. No one wants to talk about it. How do you tell that to kids? How do you get rid of it? Can you unlearn things? People say, oh, could you go back? I don't know. We haven't really got away from it because we've been outside it anyway. We have a better obligation. How you do that? takes time. But you need to learn the rules so you can live in a different practice. If you give up, then they keep saying, oh, what will happen when the lights go out? <laughs> oh, have a rest. Have a rest. One of the other opposite things that quite often did was not work the way that we do now. In that way, we're not taxing the, the land of the country. 
Thanks, Uncle Paul. Um, I don't know if you all picked it up a bit earlier. Of course, I'm sure you will. Janara's uh, my sister, even though we don't have the same surname, Janet. Um, <laughs> and so the, the, the introduction that she, uh, he gave, uh, Tim gave about you know, her background, it's the same for me as well. Obviously, I'm a Murray from um, uh, Central, not the Queensland. Um, I started calling it Not the Queensland a couple of years ago because it's not the Queensland, it's Murrayland. It's that simple. Um, anyway, I didn't come up here to sort of crack jokes. Um, we had another panel member and um, Gennaro invited me pretty much at the last minute. And I said, what am I going to talk about? Um, okay, I'll give a brief, you know, my viewpoint about, you know, my ideas about decolonising democracy. Um, so I'm happy to, it'll be fairly brief because I haven't had much time. I have, have no time to prepare, really. But... Um, so I'll start by, I'll talk about things that, um, of course, a lot of people in this room already acknowledge and have been spoken many times before in the past and will be in the future. And it's about what happened 230 years ago when this country was invaded by the British. And, um, you know, years ago I wouldn't say it was invaded by the British, but I quite openly, happily say that now. And we had our own society, our own methodologies of operating. We had our own, to put it in white-fellow terms, um, doctors, lawyers, you know, um, border, border police, you know, policemen. We had our own beautiful society that was completely properly functioning. They came in, they didn't recognise this, and their goal was to totally destroy it because the primary goal was to steal this land and to wipe us out. They, uh, unfortunately for them, um, they completely failed miserably because we're still here, and it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And when our sovereignty is completely recognised, that's when things will actually start to change. Now, the issue I have with um, our democracy is when I, I look at what's happening in our current democracy and how things are, uh, are being done, and you all know what I'm talking about here, it's broken. It's badly broken. And, you know, I thought there was a time when it, it might have actually... I've, I've been in... I've been interested in politics my whole life. I was a member of a, a young member of a, another party when I was 16. So I've been in politics my whole life. And there were times when it, it kind of looked like it might work, but it's broken now. And you can see, and I don't have to quote all the things that everyone else has quoted. You all know what I'm talking about, all these things that are happening now. And we're not going to talk about these things in these emergency situations because we don't want to see people arguing with people when we should be out. No, I don't need to go there. We all know what I'm talking about. So the issue is, is that they came and forced this upon us and we were already functioning completely well. We, we didn't need their democracy. 
But unfortunately, it's what we're stuck with. So when you start to talk about decolonising democracy, how are we going to do that? And we can't start with this, you know, voice, treaty, truth. That's around the wrong way. It should be truth, treaty, voice. The truth-telling is what must happen first because I'm pretty confident the people in this room know the truth and I won't have to tell them the truth because, you know, most of you, I'd say, would be fellow Greens, so you know what I'm talking about. It's the ignorant people out there who either don't... They, they haven't had the opportunity to learn or their ears are closed to learning. When they learn from us, they must learn the truth about... And I, 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 I was determined to not get up here and, and speak about all these, you know, all these really bad things that I've, I've often quite get... I can get really fiery and talk about these things and, you know, I've had megalos in the audience in tears <laughs> because I've spoken really harshly about these things. I don't want to go there today. You all know what I'm talking about. But the one point I wanted to focus on is that it must start with truth-telling. That's the only way this country can actually move forward um, with us as, as partners in this relationship. We're not going away. They wanted us to go away. We're here forever. We're a part of this. I'm talking about us First Nations mob, obviously. And they need to wake up to themselves. And I don't want to go through the, the, the bullshit they're talking about with voice, treaty, truth is all completely wrong. We need truth-telling first. Then we might be able to talk about a voice to parliament and treaty. But the whole of Australia has lied for centuries. They've swept it under the carpet. They weren't prepared to talk about it. Even when I was younger, I wouldn't talk about it very much, but I have no hesitation whatsoever now. And in daily in my life, every single day, I talk about it and people are shocked. And I tell them, you've got to go and learn. It's the only way that we're going to move forward and we're actually going to have a, a decent democracy. I actually... I am sad for our democracy at the moment, the way it, it, it's not working. Um, and even just thinking this morning, actually, I'll, I might wrap up. I did a little bit of research about my thoughts about um, decolonising decolonizing democracy. And I actually found a quote that really resonated with me well, and I think you'll agree with it. So I'll just finish up with that. From an unknown writer. The discourse of democracy is the continuation of a neo-colonial world order. This is so because democracy manifests itself in the form of colonisation of the future, or as a discourse without alternatives in colonising the political space that is supposed to be open to the future. Democracy therefore occupies alternatively as such. The idea of democracy then is tyrannical in the sense that it expresses a desire for universality beyond its scope by colonising what is thinkable. Decolonising democracy is to elaborate the basis for this claim by tracing intersections between democratic and post-colonial theory, both broadly and conceived. We have a long, long way to go. Uh, I'll start with protocol and acknowledge Ngunnawal people and their continued resistance to survive mass genocide and assimilation um, on them and on their country. And um, I, I just want to say to the two doctors here, I'm just, 
I said to James, I don't know why we're sitting here. They've just nailed it. Um, and I hope that you listened to what they had to say because that is the answer. That is the answer. And if anything you take away from the next couple of days, I, I, I just think you have to take that seriously. You know, it's not just a PowerPoint presentation. It's not just a, a yarn from elders. That is, that is a democracy that we need to be looking at in this country. So I just want to say thank you and that I'm very honoured to um, be in your company and to have listened to that because that's what my old people have been telling me for all my life and, and I'm seeing that more and more around the country. But the reality also is that we are under constant assault, constant genocide. Even though they failed, they are still trying very hard to wipe us out. And we need people to stand with us to resist for our continued survival. Because an assault on our country is an assault on us. We are the environment. We are the ecology. That is who we are. So when we see a tree chopped down, that's a part of us. We feel the pain. Those trees and those animals and our totems, that is our responsibility. That's a responsibility that you've heard. That's, I know that I hear that, not just from my own family, but from elders in other country, that this is your responsibility. And when you, when you see that destroyed by the current democracy, the colonial democracy, the oppressive democracy. That's the pain we feel every single day. We carry that. And I, I can't think anything more about the, you know, the 300 wedge-tailed eagles that were murdered on my country during the treaty legislation being debated in the parliament that I was a part of. There was a clear sign to me, that I should never have supported that piece of legislation. I knew it was a sign. I knew. And I went against that sign and I've been paying for it ever since. So... I'm a bit emotional because I haven't taken this T-shirt off since that boy was murdered in his homeland. And it was those elders from that community that reached out to the angry activists, the black activists around the country and said, we need help. We need legal support and we need protests around the country. And we did that. Because we are all one. We are all one, different languages, but all one people, fighting the same fight. So when that boy, when that happened to that boy, we all felt that pain. The assault has to stop on our people because it is getting harder. 
and climate, you know, the climate catastrophe that we're facing. That's a catastrophe we've faced for 250 years. We've been facing that same catastrophe. Extinction Rebellion. We've been rebelling against extinction for 250 years. And people are just starting to say, oh, you know, Aboriginal people, they know the, the country. They know how to burn the bush. And it's all this wonderful new thing. But it's not. It's something we've been trying to tell people all of this time. And now that it's becoming too late, people are starting to reach out and ask for help from us. And there's not many of us left. And it's the grassroots, blackfellas on the ground fighting for survival and fighting for country and protesting. We're the ones that are dying young. It's not the corporate blacks. It's not the blacks that are signing off on country. And that's the part that needs to change also in terms of democracy. The Uluru Statement, all the flash blacks got up there and sold us out. The grassroots didn't get invited to that meeting. The Victorian Treaty gave designated seats to the corporations that are signing off with mining companies and dirty deals. That's not our democracy. It's not how we do business. So the division in black communities is because governments have worked out through the art of war how to wedge us, and that is to create these powerful organisations and corporations that have got money and power and are in bed with whatever government of the day is, and they sell us out. And I get in trouble for saying that, because truth hurts. And it calls people out. It even calls out some of my own people. But I'm not there for them. And I'm not there to be, you know, I don't, money's nothing. Japarung trees. Money won't do anything for those birthing trees that have been a part of my heritage for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of generations. But it's a corporation that signed off on those trees. So we need to build our grassroots, just like the Greens call, you know, grassroots democracy. That's, I think Greens stole that from us, actually. Um, and consensus de decision-making, that's us. That's how we do business. And these corporations are hurting us. And it hurts more when it's your own mob doing it to you. So we need help in that space. We need people to pay the rent for being on stolen land. Because the, the grassroots blackfellas who are protesting and fighting against this, we have nothing. We have nothing but the clothes on our back. And we're fighting big corporations 
just like whitefellas are fighting Adani. We're doing that on the ground as well. When um, Aboriginal organisations were set up in the late 60s and early 70s, they were based on free informed prior consent, they were based on self-determination. They were good. It was, it was because we had no political voice in those days. And those Aboriginal organisations were set up for that very reason, as well as health and justice and, and all of that. But they were basically a cover-up for a political voice that we needed to have in this country. Now that they've been railroaded by government and, and have to tick the box to get their funding, that voice has, has been taken away. And that's why we have the situation we have today, where we have grassroots around the country. We're, all the, we're the ones that are connecting up through our song lines. We're the ones that are keeping our, our country and culture alive and, and supporting one another. But it's bloody hard. It's hard. And I'm seeing that. I've just done a, a, a national tour, if you like, talking to every grassroots blackfellow that's fighting on the front line. And it's exactly the same everywhere. Everywhere. Adani, you know, mob signed off on behalf of grassroots. Grassroots are fighting Adani. Debing Creek, same thing. Japarung trees, same thing. Coal-fired power stations everywhere, same thing. Fracking, same thing. So we need to, you need to talk to as many people as you can to support the grassroots because we're the ones that are going to create the change on the ground. We're the ones that are going to keep our culture alive and our song lines singing. And so when we come back to democracy, we need sovereign hubs around this nation that cultivate more black activists, more black campaigners. Because who's doing that and getting paid for it? Green groups. Green groups. Green groups who wheel us in for a welcome to country and wheel us back out. Highly paid green campaigners, highly paid green environmentalists. So you need to think about that. Blackfellas need to be paid to continue to fight for country the way we have. And it's not about money, it's just about making sure that our people have food on the table and our kids have clothes on their backs so that we can continue to fight for what we, what we all want. So I believe the climate crisis is a result of the genocide of our people. Because when the country's dying, and I look around and I see our people dying, it's hand, it goes hand in hand. It's not separate. And that we have a different approach to protecting country. 
And we need to hold the environment groups to account, not just the Labor Party or the LNP and the far right. We need to hold our own groups to account and realise how white they really are. And who's sitting at the table when you go to an environment group? Are there black fellas there? Usually not. Because that's what I've witnessed around the country right now. That when I go to an environment meeting, it's a, it's a bunch of white experts at the table. And I've been calling it out and I'll continue to call it out. And if you, you know, to use one very good example, we called out the Great Forest National Park because we don't agree with it because it's white. It's been labelled by white people and white people have been campaigning for it. And because we called it out, we've got sovereign clans working with David Lindemeyer, the scientist, with Chris Taylor and Sarah Reese, and, and we're working together as a team and we're sharing stories and we're looking at a different approach to protecting that forest and that campaign. So there are good examples of how we can do it better, but it's about taking a seat, taking a step back as beneficiaries of this colonised land and allowing a space for us and a paid space and not using us as token blacks to come in and, and wheel out the welcome to country every now and again. Thanks. <laughs> Palya, for all that wisdom. Thank you so much, everyone, Palya. So, uh, in the 18th century, this judge in England, or 18th century, 1800s, this judge in England asked his legal apprentice, uh, what is democracy and what is the law? And the young man said a few things, and the judge said no, he said, democracy and the law is about property rights. Everything is about property. So you have to own the land. You have to have rights and title over the property in order to have wealth, capitalism, democracy and everything else. And so that's why we had to be terra nullius, so that it could be taken. So I think what you want to do in your lives now, in your thinking, being and doing, and your way of acting, is to not be terrenalious with us anymore. But know that one part of our law that I was taught as a young woman is something that's very hard for a lot of people to take and understand. But we practice this. Every person born on this land, Nunjanatia, which you now call Australia, by the woman who gives birth to all the spirits, Nunjanatia, are our brothers and sisters. We don't look at colour, religion, gender or race. If you were born here, you're our brothers and sisters. If you came from another country, your Kurumpa, your spirit brought you here for a purpose, for a spiritual purpose. And it's our role as traditional custodians of this country to allow you to fulfil your spiritual purpose on our country as long as you don't destroy it or destroy us. So imagine a culture that considers you all from the time 
you and your ancestors came here and said, you don't exist. As your brothers and sisters, this is how we see you. And you know there's a lot of Aboriginal people that haven't learnt this way because of colonisation. But it's the way that we continue to share with them and say to them, just remember they're only going to be here for that long. And we truly believe that in the great scheme of things. So for us, decolonising democracy, for me, is for you and I and all of us to not go, oh, they're First Nations people and we're whitefellas. No, we're brothers and sisters. We're Walcher. We're family. Because we're all living on the same Nunjanatia and we were all born on the same Nunjanatia, which you now call Australia. I'm going to close the session by asking all my colleagues here to stand up with me. If you could stand up. Just stand up, we're not going to dance. Nah, no, I've got no country here to dance on. So I'm going to uh, end this session by singing a sacred song that's very old, that was written, written by the women of our clan. <laughs> it's thousands of years old, we don't know when it started. We have to sing it to carry through. It's a medicine song. Often it helps move energy so that you can become more harmonious in yourself. It's also a song that makes rain. So if you kill all the rainmakers, who's going to sing up the rain? Yeah? So this tradition was passed on to me through my mother and down the line. So I ask you all to close your eyes in respect for the ancientness of this sacred song. Please don't remember the words, which you won't because they're in lingo. And don't repeat it if you can. Uh, so... Maybe we'll make rain, let's see what the ancestors say. So, this song is for all of you, so that you become part of our culture, so that we give to each other in a more human way. <laughs> Okay, so we'll do a Q&A. Anybody with a question, start with the man in the front. Uh, thank you very, very much. Uh, we need wisdom. We need wisdom like never before. And we need personal wisdom. We need spiritual wisdom. Um, if we're going to get out of the mess we're in, we need to completely reinvent the way we perceive ourselves and our relationships with each other and with the country. And the generosity of the spirit that you give of we being brothers and sisters, not being descendants of invaders, uh, perhaps we're unworthy of, but we thank you. Um, I think it's very important that as a political party, we try and live internally these principles if we're going to project those into the, uh, into the community and project a different way of doing politics. And I think that the inspiration you're providing is, uh, is priceless. Thank you. Thank you.
I share Lydia's frustration as someone who works in the climate movement around the spaces that get set up around decision making and the colonial spaces they're done in a particular way that exclude a lot of people. I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about you know what's wrong in terms of the way means are set up, who gets invited, who's paid, who can afford to be there, all those kinds of things. But what has worked? What are the spaces that actually work to be inclusive with genuine discussion? And that's for anyone on the panel. There's some examples of what that actually looks like. Uh, I think that um, one that comes to mind is Jabaluka. Blackfellas ran that. Like, it was senior women that led that and, and um, ensured that protocol was followed. And the greenies that came into town um, were told, you know, these are the rules of the camp. This is how we are going to run this campaign. And what happened? They won. Um, that's not happening. I haven't seen that happen at Adani, respectfully. So, um, also with the nuke stuff in, in South Australia, um, there's a very underfunded collective of Aboriginal people, traditional owners and environment groups and, and some of those environment groups ensure that Aboriginal people can get to that um, meeting, I think it's twice a year or so. Um, and those environment, so actually it's not the groups, it's particular individuals within a particular organisation that sometimes do it without the organisation knowing, um, that actually ensure that the family that that follows leaving or that woman's leaving are also looked after. So there's food, you know, there's all that kind of support that's provided before that person leaves that family to come to that meeting. So there's, there are some good examples. Um, and I know this because I've been working with Australian Conservation Foundation to try and, you know, make them not so non-white. Um, and good on them for, you know, getting someone like myself um, to, to whack them a bit around what they need to be doing better. They are about to start paying the rent for being on stolen land and they are giving us a sovereign space in the green building in Carlton. They're also giving us a sovereign space in Brisbane and eventually in Sydney. So they are paying the rent by creating space for us to do our own business and self-determine our own destiny. But we need pay the rent to pay for black campaigners and black activists to work in the space to, yeah, to, to continue what we do. So we need people to pay the rent. We've got Bank Australia on board. We've got a few others on board that are supporting it. But we need more people to pay the rent and we're not asking for a lot of money. But if a lot of people did it, then we could, we could create something different. Um, let me give you an example of how not to run a meeting with blackfellas. So that old man you saw on the picture, Jill P. Randall, he went back to his country, Uluru, in 2004 and went to a meeting with the Land Council's Community Development Unit. They'd come out to Murujulu to talk about something, to do something on country. And he went into the room and there's all these black fellas and women too. And the community development worker was handing around sheets of paper. And the old fella he sat next to had the sheet of paper upside down and he's looking at it. 
And uncle said, he turned it round the right way and he said, can you read that one? And the old man said, no, I can't read that one because he doesn't speak English like he done. English is fifth language, right? Fifth dialect. And uncle said, oh, but then how do you know what she wants? Or how do you know what you're supposed to do here? And he said, oh, no, we just listen to her and we just try to find out what she wants and then we agree with her. So they take advantage of everything in these people's lives. You know, they don't know English, but are handing pieces of paper with English written on it, not even translated. And all these people can trans... There's people who can translate. So it's something of what not to do. Check the protocol first. You know, start with older people and elders and invite them. And one of the things we always do is we invite everyone. Every single person. Because nobody can say, I didn't get invited to come to this meeting. Like the statement from the heart. A lot of us say, we didn't get invited to go to that meeting. So you can't actually talk for all of us. So that's what not to do. Go and ask the blackfellas what the proper process is. And then follow them. And it'll work. Deadly, eh? Uh, we need whitefellas to call out other whitefellas. So when you go to a big climate meeting, we need you to call that out. Because we're not there to do that. Well, thank you very much for this our time together. Um, I forgot what I was actually going to ask. <laughs> but uh, I, I feel really in the heart there's some really powerful stuff happening. I, oh, that's right. You mentioned something about enlightenment and how really, you know, I've spent quite a bit of time in politics and local groups. I look around at all the mostly white people in there. Everybody's really in, in it for themselves. It's just about me, what I want. There's no real... There might be an intellectual concept of the greater good, but really it's about the greater good the best for everyone. I think we have, in order to get democracy to work, we really have to get, swap that around in the white culture. Yeah, one of the things about sacred leadership is that egotistical leadership is at the bottom of the ladder. <laughs> this gentleman, thank you. Um, thank you all very much for that. Mark Parnell from the South Australian State Parliament. Um, last month, we laid to rest um, a very respected um, Aboriginal elder, Narunga man, Porto Sanfrey. Family can use his name. Um, at the funeral, there was a sheet of paper on all of the seats. There were hundreds of people there. And it basically said, I've been fighting for Aboriginal people my whole life. Um, now I'm fighting blood cancer. And then he then set out his final words on, on this topic, on politics. And it was very challenging because uh, he basically wrote us all off. Um, uh, he, he railed against the Liberals and the Nationals. He railed against Labor. Uh, he'd been a Labor candidate before. He didn't mention the Greens, but I think we were uh, by omission um, left off. And his, his conclusion was, we need an Aboriginal political party. And he then goes on to say, I know it's controversial and I know people don't like it, but this is a guy you know, who, at the end of his life, that was the conclusion he reached. Now, it's challenging for us because we think, no, 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 we can be better. You know, we can 
fill this uh, need and we can repair some of the, the, the damage that's been talked about. So without uh, wanting to uh, you know, get into a, a, a pure debate on whether a, a new political party is the answer, because as you've all said, it's, it's entrenching many of the problems we've already got. It's basically working within the existing game, the existing rules. But um, how do we respond uh, to his family? This was his final words. We, we had it at his funeral. Thank you. Um, I might just uh, briefly say that my view is that Australia needs um, a council of elders and Aboriginal elders who hold the spiritual and moral value system of Australia. They might not be a political party or a political group. In fact, it would be best that they were not and that they would be on that group because they follow the law. How hard is it to recognise the sovereignty of the people that were here before you by giving us that space of equity and equality? There you have your parliament and we'll have ours and we'll all share and take care of country together. You know, like the greed and the ego and all of that needs to disappear from this whole system. That's my view. And I don't think I'd like an Aboriginal political party. I'd like a council of elders that was set up on that more spiritual, moral value systems because we really know how to hold those kind of values. We're taught from a young age. And so those of us who can are the people that should be doing that. River towns, Burkeville, Kenya, and India. When the water level goes down, the crime rate in that community goes through the roof. We are in direct relationship with that river. And you get that into policy. You have to do that stuff. But now that there's no water, there are birthing trees to one another. No water to hold them back. Just about all that women screaming for that representation in a physical sense is gone. And so the scar trees, the old ones, they've been burnt up in New South Wales now. They're not there. They're getting the genocide. Why are we mucking around a system that's broken? It's only the system that you know. That's the problem. And you'd be putting blackbirds in suits if you come and talk that stuff. I think too much of that. It hasn't got us a long way. What do you do? You won't change your way. You won't change that system. You don't even know how to say hello in Nanawa. I've been teaching for a long time. I've been thinking for a long time also now how to protect country. Firmly believe if you know the language of the country, you are less prone to hurt it. So when you leave here, wherever you come from, wherever you go to, I find out at least how to say hello in that local language, there might be a number of local languages. 
It must be a wonderful thing for blackbirds to hear. You don't need uh, any degree or any, any practice. Be a parent, be a farmer, or be a politician. Think of the politician and the farmers, the two most important aspects of our lives, not guaranteed by any intelligence. So I don't know whether we can just put back on us and suits and, and, and you know, we'll have a voice. Maybe it starts here. I think it's wrong. I think that system is wrong, and we never get out of the system. I think you all got before that. That was what I was alluding to as well. System is broken. It's the only system we've got, and I didn't like. I thought what my sister said was just amazing. I hadn't really thought about that before. So you know, like I'm learning today as well. Um, the, pro the work that I'm doing, um, the last person I spoke to in Adelaide was Uncle Toto. And I've known Uncle Toto since I was a kid. Um, and when you, you know, I'm 46 now and I've seen a lot of our warriors like that pass. And I think about how much longer I have given our statistics on dying younger and I said to Uncle Toto, Uncle I've got to talk to you about this project, we've got to make these green groups do better, we've got to um, you know, we've got to bring the green movement behind the black movement, we've got to flip it he said yeah, I'm not talking, I don't want to talk to you about that yet, let's, let's talk about setting up a black party I said well I'll talk to you about that if you talk to me about this so we did, and, and he's been, he was on about that for quite a while. And I've had a lot of people come to me saying, you've got to set up a black party. Um, when I won the election in Northcote, one of the first people to congratulate me was Jeff Kennett. He sent me a text message and wanted to have coffee with me. 
and it freaked me out. Um, because my uncle, you know, my uncle charged him with genocide and so he knows the Thorpe family. Um, when I lost the election, I responded to his text message and I said, I'll have that coffee with you now, Jeff. And he said, why? And I said, because I want to know what you think I should do next. And we went and had coffee at his place and we spoke for a long time. And he said, you need to set up your own party. And I've been thinking about this for a while and I've been thinking and I've been talking to other um, elders and political leaders and I just want to make the Greens better. We have to make the Greens better. And I have been known to say the Greens are shit because I've had to struggle within the party as well. But I do think that we can make it better and I want to be part of making it better because there's not enough of us to, to set up our own party. And there's a lot of good people in, in the Greens party and there's a lot of people that get it. There's more people that get it than not. And I just think that through solidarity we can make it much bigger and stronger. Um, but there are, there's a lot of work to do. So with all due respect to, to um, Uncle Toro, um, and we debated about this as well. Um, we have, there have been examples of black parties set up in the NT and in Victoria. Um, but, you know, our everyday struggles just don't allow for us to have the time to organise. Whereas we've got a party that we believe in, that align with our values, I don't... I don't believe that we need to go and set up another one. We just need to make this one better. We're not going... Blackfellas will never... You know, there's some vegan blackfellas, but I'm not a vegan. I've decolonised my diet. I don't eat colonised meats. You know? Um, and we can't... We've got to... They're the, some of the things that need to change within the Greens Party. Um, the medicines, you know? We have bush medicines. So, Tim, I just saw you look, tilt your head at me. Um, but, you know, that needs to be recognised. We need to decolonise the Greens and encourage more blackfellas to be a part of the Greens. And we can be... A, a, you know, we, we need to really look at the black-greens model a lot better and support the black-greens going forward to, to make us the party we should be. Oh, thank you. Oh, one more. This man in the pink shirt. Oh, sorry, have you had your hand up a long time? Okay, can we ask, can we let him? Thank you so much. This gentleman at the back. Um... Thank you all so very much uh, for your speaking. And I just wanted to bring something up because you touched on it earlier. Also, in part, to respond to, um, to mention about Uncle Tordo because he was also one of my elders from South Australia and one of the reasons I ended up in Canberra. And in fact, five years ago, Torto came to Canberra with... Uh, Torto came to Canberra with... Torto came to Canberra with about 20 elders from across the country. Um, these elders came to Canberra from a series of meetings that happened out in the Alice Springs called the Freedom Summits. Uh, that was one of the first expressions in nearly the decade 
of indigenous democracy and voices trying to re represent itself long before you heard any of this constitutional recognition stuff. Um, when that delegation came to Canberra with thousands of people backing it on its lawns, it was snubbed in 15 minutes before its meeting with Tony Abbott and sent home. Um, Australia wasn't ready for Indigenous voices in democracy then, and what we saw happen shortly after it was a move towards a controlled narrative, a new Indigenous voice, um, voice, treaty, truth, um, Uluru, well, Yalara statement from the heart. And I'd just like to hear from those on the panel what is the danger of a controlled narrative um, that is going to release all this pressure and goodwill that we have to actually do something? And um, what can be done to support um, different mob around the country actually being heard? Because we don't need saving, we need support. And that's exactly what you need too. Good question. Maybe you said earlier about Aboriginal organisations that grew back in the late 60s and 70s starting to appear as a, a real development force in the 80s. A lot of those, medical, a lot of those organisations were medical centres. I worked at the Monaco Centre for a long time in Newcastle. In those mid 80s, a guy that would pick up people in the surgery to get their treatment. The CEO of the organisation was run, was held accountable by a board. Sometimes that board could be in the management. These big problems, they're development problems. We've got to have those because we're again working in the right system. Take the chair. Take the chair, guy. Just talk properly. So there's all these protocols that have We pick those people up, particularly old people, and check them. Now, the rules have changed. So a lot of the people that have come out of the universities have been coming to universities with degrees in business and economics. Business for the organisation. Those cars don't pick up those aboriginal and the kids are anymore. We don't do that. We've got the bottom line. I ask you, would that create more or less tension in the Aboriginal community? Probably more. Probably more. What a mind right. So even the universities in some ways are not knowingly, but they're a part of it, a way of breaking down this belief into an individual. And so the system is not right. I don't think it can be fixed. It can be changed completely. But there's no, there's no need in, in that. Well, how do we do things? There's a fireplace down in Warrnambool about three and a half months ago. It's carbon dated for 125,000 years. I'm making iron there. And I'm making it. Fireplace that sustain. We cook them right. I believe that bastard coming back next year too. Uh, we're waiting for it. We cook them right. That means the people won't make an eye. Do you know why? 
supposed to be a part of the world sinner. You couldn't marry a sinner because you at the full part of that. God just far enough away you have nothing to do. How long does it take to learn that? That meeting that woman and use this boy and there's something wrong with you. Seven times. The same with the rule of the land. You've got to look after the country, they say. No stain on the country in seven generations. So how long did it take to learn that? That quiet place was 125,000 years old. And the millions were in here. You have to look at that digital culture or even that digital philosophy very well. Mainly because focus has been in Europe. It's the idea that it came either from India, China, or from Africa. And one thing that Aboriginal people agree with is right now, we came from Norway, but we can't even accept that. The folks say something different. They say they're a different species. They you might be a different species, but no one's been able to resist white people. Yeah, so obviously, the country's been treated like a rubbish pit. Just destroy it. Now we're going to go for that water from that Darling River. No one. All them bars in town. I think they're in danger not only to us, but to the land itself. There's no doubt about that. To walk in the crowd in the front of the car in the car. That's disgusting. So, in terms of what you, whether we, whether we can get something that fixes it, I don't know. I'm all for uh, collaboration and, and speaking with people. But I think the system is wrong. We've got an individual that says me. And it's probably not competition. If you're, you're worried about how you stay in that position. In elections, you know, the freedom to, to vote uh, is not guaranteed in Australia, as it is in America, but you can see how that can be lopsided as well. But there's nothing that quite works. One last thing I say, two years ago, I gave a talk at ANU on Aboriginal history. Watch this. Anyone know of this? You know that definition? I know that this one. This book can be seen in people's eyes. You can see when people are unwise as well. It's very hard to define. It's a bit like the wind. You can't see it, but you can see its effect. Roxley, I think the sovereign hubs, I mean, you know, you talked about the organisation, we both talked about the organisation starting out in the late 60s and early 70s because of what was going on then to our people. There's been nothing since, so we need a new uprising and I, I do believe um, sovereign hubs around the nation um, and even though we've only, we're only starting with one in Melbourne at the moment, but then continuing uh, on to get another three, 
when I went to meet with Larrakia people, they said, no, we should be the priority because they're, they're fracking our country. So every elder that I spoke to around the country said, no, we want one here, we want one here. I can't, like, we can't keep up with the demand because we haven't even started the first one. But the, um, having a space where we come together, where we've got the resources, we've got a photocopier and where we've got social access to getting out social media the way I've seen Greens do, if we did that ourselves, then that's going to make a massive difference because what's, what the problem is, is the environment groups are wedged by the black corporations because they can't be seen to be racist or calling out a black corporation and the grassroots can't get into the black corporation to say, no, don't, don't sign a deal to frack country. We need an alternative. We don't have that. It's just angry blacks on the street saying, don't frack our country. We need to get more organised and have these hubs around the country so that we can get more organised, so we can call out the corporations that are signing our country away to these companies. And we get supported by the environment groups in terms of resources and expertise and training and all of that so we, we're building our own mob, we're empowering our own mob to do what these fellas have been doing without us for too long. So that's what I see as a... And, and you know, it was just an idea that, that popped up, um, but now that that's been tested around the nation, everyone wants it. Every black fella I've spoken to wants this to happen. The example in the NT is... The mining companies have good access because they've got helicopters, they can fly in and fly out and they're telling our mob on the ground who, can't, who don't speak English um, how great fracking is and, and how much of an opportunity it is for their people and their community in terms of um, economic development and there's no one, none of their own mob able to come in, learn, what, you know, learn about fracking and then go back and talk to their own mob about the negative effects of fracking and how much how destructive that is. Whereas the hubs can cultivate that conversation to happen right across the nation. Because it's true, like, you know, so many people don't understand the effects of fracking, of coal. You know, white fellas in the environment movement, they'll re reel it off no problem. But our people don't understand that on the country that that it's happening on. So we need to cultivate this movement, which I see it as, and, and the Australian Conservation Foundation are allowing, allowing this to happen, or we're making them make it happen. I'll say it that way. Um, but we need more people on board to, to resource and, and make it happen across the country, because they want one at Yaliri as well. You know, they want... They want them everywhere where we're struggling. And Queensland University are about to um, do a, a, uh, a map of all the mobs fighting for country or water so that we can look at a map and say, whoa, this is what's happening to Aboriginal people on their own lands right across this nation. No one's even done that because it's coming from a white perspective. So we need to inform our own mob about what's going on too. I thought I'd join in to making a few comments as well, um, talking about the Aboriginal organisations in the 70s and 80s that have co co-opted and um, 
basically been set aside and the 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 black um, you know corporate the black suits the people that the, the black fellas that you know what Lydia said before about you know these white organizations don't want to be seen to be being racist so they're going to work with these groups these are the ones that are actually selling selling out grassroots black fellas this is what we've got to stop and to go back to talking about us creating our own political party I've never personally believed in that I joined the Greens because I believe the Greens is the way to do it and I'm asking all of you to get on board and get behind supporting us to do what we're trying to achieve, to do what Lydia and the ACF is trying to achieve. We have, a, you know, Australia-wide, we have a very powerful organisation in the Greens. So I'm personally asking you all to get on board and support the Black Greens in particular. Oh, Palia, I just want to say one thing to you, Mob. Back in the late 70s and 80s, I came to Canberra as a young person to work, and the way blackfellas used to come down here and have meetings was um, all that mob used to just turn up, like somehow they'd make the money or they'd get on a bus and they'd all just turn up, and there'd be like a bush area out the back here. Everyone would just camp, and then we'd have like a, like a corroboree. It was done blackfella way. So they have like a little tent and they'd start talking. So anybody who wanted to talk would get up and talk. And he could say, she could say whatever they want. They could yell, scream, tell everyone to F off, do whatever they liked, but they were listened to. And that's how they did their parliament. And then they would go with Charlie and the other mob down to see the minister and they'd say, this is the way it's gonna be. And that's how they got the things in place. So they did it in their own way, proper way. They didn't control the narrative. They let people talk and they made a decision about what was the important things out of that talking. Then they went and told the government and then it went where it went. Colonisation is a process of acculturation where we adapt to survive to the dominant culture. So all those organisations adapted to survive and created themselves in order to get into the dominant culture system to get funding, to get political voice, to get places. And now they've become part of, sometimes, part of the problem. And those people that go and talk still in that community, way out in community, they're not in those organisations because they won't vote on the board or get on the board or whatever. Or it's a little click of this family or that family. So it's very difficult for you, Mod, to know how to do that. But we know how to do that. And I remember learning from Charlie Perkins and all that mob, watching the way they did things. And it really taught me that was the proper way to do things, not to be like this board of white fellas, not to do that. That takes away the voice of the common person. So thank you so much for having us all today. And palio to our very clever future politicians, Miss Lydia Thorpe, Mr James Williams, Dr Paul Collis, he'll never be a politician but he'll be a fantastic storyteller and teacher of storytelling. And Dr. Goring Goring, who may not be anything but just a deadly old waka waka woolly woolly woman. <laughs> oh, there's one more man. <laughs> oh, uh, I did wanna just uh, have a show of hands. Does every, anybody know about the Aboriginal Provisional Government? No, look at that. 
So we've had an Aboriginal provisional government since the late 80s. You've heard of Michael Mansell. We've all got passports from our own countries, yeah? We've got a foreign affairs minister. We've got a minister for social affairs. It's kind of an interesting blackfellow way of doing it. But it exists. And it's really interesting that you don't know anything about it. <laughs> Anybody else? And then we better geo and have some food. Okay. Let's all just say ta-da. Yeah. Yeah.